I hope you have been enjoying our journey through Zechariah. Uh, I've been appreciating as we go through this book the reminders of so many key truths that are in here. And, you know, for what this book has to say and the way I feel like it's impacted me and us, I'm surprised that this book gets neglected so often. Um, It's a book that's scary and intimidating, but God is clearly moving. So, Uh, We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. I'm going to cut us off in the middle of something Zechariah is saying because there's just so much goodness in these next few chapters that we can't cover all at once. So I'm going to read and we're going to cut us off uh, before he's really finished. Uh, We're in Zechariah chapter 9. At this point, the book takes a turn, um, sort of literally uh, and literarily, uh, a little shift here as it moves from the visions Uh, that he's been having to these oracles and prophecies that are spoken over Israel. And in these chapters, this last part of the book, there are so many uh, allusions and concepts and prophecies that point ahead to Jesus as the coming king. So we're going to, this is the point in the book, up till now you're like, what the heck is going on in this book? This is the point where you're going to start seeing all of the things that you're used to hearing, all of the things that the New Testament draws on from Zechariah are all squished in this last section. Uh, And so let me jump into chapter 9. I'm going to read it through and then we'll break it down some more. This is chapter 9, starting at verse 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest on Damascus. For the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord and on Hamat too, which borders on it and on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She's heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony and Ekron too for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king. Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod and I will put an end pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, or a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the earth and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. 
They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his, in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. You know, once again, as we look at this passage, the interpretative work that we have every time we come to the Bible is the same, right? We've got to understand what, this words, what these words mean to the original readers. So what does it mean to the people of Israel as they're brought back from exile and as they're in the process of rebuilding the temple and looking to all of these promises that God has? What does it mean to them? And then from there, what does it mean to us? And so we're going to look at some things today. And, and this is always my hope, I guess, when I'm preaching. We're going to look at some really simple gospel truths, simple reminders of this big story. We're going to see them again in this part of the scripture. Why do I say this is kind of my hope? I'm hoping we know the Bible story well enough that when I share this stuff, you're like, I know this. We want to know it well enough that simple reminders are, are, are stirring in us that familiarity and nostalgia at the things of God. So we want to be there. And we want to see that it doesn't matter if you're in Genesis if you're in the, the Kings and Chronicles, if you're in the prophetic literature, if you're in Psalms, if you're in the Gospels, if you're in, uh, in Paul's letters, it doesn't matter where you go in the scriptures, the message is the same, right? We want to be reminded that it doesn't matter where we go, God's message is consistent. So let's look at some simple reminders of core gospel truths and hopefully God will use them to penetrate in a deeper way in our heart. So as Israel has returned from exile, they're back in the land, they're rebuilding the temple, God speaks a reassuring message to them in this oracle. And the message that he brings first that encourages these people is this, God will overcome his enemies. And so if you look at verse 8 as a summary, this beautiful statement, I'm going to encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now, I am keeping watch. Israel's been in exile. We've seen through the Bible story and we know through history, they've had oppressor after oppressor after oppressor. Uh, we know this promise here as they're back in the land, they're, they're being restored or rescued out from this oppressive land of Babylon. They're back in the land. They're surrounded by the enemies that have always been there. And in many senses, they've been exiled from the land. So now the enemies overrun the land that they're called back to. So God has given them this message of hope that as you're returning to the work that I've called you to do, and as you look up and you see around you all of these forces that stand against me, here is my promise. I will speak against them and those enemies will be defeated. Right? So if we have in our mind the heart and attitude of the people returning to the land, trying to figure out how this is going to work, how when we've been kicked out of our land, when we've had nothing and we're restored to the land, how can we come back to a place of prominence? And God is reminding them that he's going to overcome these obstacles that stand around them. Think about the people in scripture that they've been attacked by. You've got the Philistines living right next to them, the Ammonites, the, the Phoenicians, the Syrophoenicians that, that tackled them before, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Moabites. You've got all these people surrounding and God is letting them know that these people and these people groups are going to be overcome. So again, where are they at? They're in the land. They're in the process. They, they built the foundation. They stopped the work because they were discouraged. 
Uh, Haggai and Zechariah have encouraged them to rebuild and so they're in this rebuild work and so we're probably halfway through the temple being completed and what's the promise that he's given in this passage as he's giving these indictments to all the enemies? What's the promise? I will encamp at my temple. You've not finished it yet but I am coming and I'm going to reside here and I'm going to guard it. Never again will any oppressor overrun my people. Now here's the fun thing about scripture, right? Whenever prophecy is spoken, there are some fulfillments that happen in the time of scripture and there's some that are yet to come. So we know from history, uh, we know from the history that we can read just in the Bible alone, that that promise doesn't get completely fulfilled. So they go into the land, we know the temple was rebuilt, uh, we know some things happen, we know by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they're overruled by Rome. So we're going to see, as we know so many times, that, that there are elements of this that are going to be fulfilled right then, but this is all pointing ahead to a day that we're still waiting on, uh, when all the enemies will finally be defeated. Let me look at this a little bit more detail, though, because when you read something like this, and God starts condemning places and people, it's always helpful, so my little tip, if you're ever reading something and there's place names, pull out a map. Right, because maps are helpful, otherwise these are just nebulous places. So I've circled the places that he's mentioned and they're highlighted and white up here. But this is the pattern of, of what is going on. They're going to come to Hadrach way up in the north. Then we're going to come down toward Damascus and Tyre and Sidon. And then from there we're coming all the way down to uh, to Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, which are in the Philistine plains. So this pattern is happening where something is going to come and judgment is going to start at the top of the land and all of these places that have been opposing and oppressing and attacking Israel one at a time are going to be dealt with through some plan that God has. There's a pattern to what he's describing here. It's not just randomly calling on the nations round about. Here's what's interesting about this. This message from Zechariah, they date it approximately 520 BC. Somewhere in there, 520, 21, 22, 23, they're in, in this window. What happens, does anyone know what happens in 333 BC? Historically, are there any history buffs in the room? There we go. I was like, where's Craig? He'll know. Alexander the Great comes on the scene and what does he do? He comes from up north on a desire to go and overthrow and take over Egypt is the focus of his conquest. And how does he get from the northeast through down to Egypt? He comes and he follows. And if you read the historical record of the journey that he takes and the towns that he tackles, you're going to see the pattern that's right here in this. So 200 years past, from Zechariah giving this prophecy till God allows Alexander the Great to come in and be the fulfillment, tackling the enemies of Israel and showing them that God will be victorious. So we see it with Alexander the Great. God is sovereign over history. Enemies will fall, but it's only partially fulfilled because the promise for no more oppressor is still unfinished. We still see nations oppressing uh, God's people in all sorts of forms. So, so what is spoken is still yet to come. But as you think about this, as you think about Israel 
tucked in, I mean, you think about Judah and Jerusalem right here at the bottom. You think of all of the nations surrounding them as they're looking at, how is this going to work? And they hear Zechariah's words as he starts up north. This nation is going to be taken care of. This town is going to be taken care of. Tyre and Sidon are going to be taken care of. Damascus is going to be taken care of. And now we're going to go down all of these Philistine tribes that have continued to oppress you. They're all going to be taken care of. Think of the hope that would instill in those people as they look at the enemies around them as they look at how futile the task in front of them seems, how impossible it seems for God to be able to do through them what he says he'll do, and yet to hear this conquest. And what do you think happened when Alexander the Great came in and they saw these towns one at a time being taken care of? It would inspire hope in them. No, we we want to spiritualize these things, rightfully so. There's a message here that God is going to tackle the enemies of his people. What are the enemies that we face today? What are the enemies of God that you're encountering in your own life? What are the things that you wrestle with daily that get in the way of you doing the things that God wants you to do? The reassurance in here is that those enemies will be defeated. There is nothing that you tackle. There is nothing that will come against our church. There is nothing that will come against the word of God. There is nothing that you will encounter in your life that God is not powerful enough to overcome. Some of the things he's going to give us power to deal with them in this day and age, but they're not going to be dealt with fully until we get to the end of time when Jesus defeats sin and death for good. There's a verse sandwiched in the middle of this passage of condemnation that speaks to the greater enemy that that he's going to deal with. And, And we always need to remember this. The greatest enemy to overcome is a human heart that's plagued by sin. This verse says, I'll take the blood from their mouth, the forbidden fruit from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah. So what are they describing here? They're describing the nations round about who are not following the kosher laws. So for Israel, when they ate meat, they were supposed to drain it of blood. They weren't supposed to eat any meat with blood in it. So you're talking about these people round about who they're gladly taking the meat. They're eating it with all of the blood. So they're, they're doing stuff that is against the way God wants it to work. But what's the description of what happens? Those people who oppose the things that I'm saying are going to belong to God and they're going to be adopted in to the clan of Judah. Um, the, the language in here, this says forbidden food. Like the word really here is, is they're engaging in abominations um, is, is the language that it use, uses here. So these people who engage in abomination are going to be rescued in to be part of God's people. And when I sat with this verse, I couldn't help but celebrate. These people who engage in abomination are going to become part of the clan of Judah. How on earth do you become part of the clan of Judah? Jesus, the Lion of Judah, adopts you into his family so that as believers we're grafted into God's people through the Lion of Judah. And so this is, in many senses, this is us that's been described Oh, these moments, I'm always like, we forget this, right? We, we read the Bible as Christians who it's like, this is all dealt with. Now remember, they're Jews. It's talking about the Gentiles. It's the Gentiles that are the abominations. It's the people that eat their meat medium rare that are the abominations. It's the people that don't separate their garments, that, that, that eat the wrong spices mixed together, that put cheese on their burger. 
because you've got the animal with the, the product of the animal together. It's us. We are the people that walk in abomination. We are the people that are being brought in through the line of Judah to the clan of Judah, adopted and absorbed into his line. The greatest enemy to overcome is a human heart that's plagued by sin. We know the gospel story. We've just celebrated it at Easter. That, that Jesus, through the sacrificial death on the cross, deals with our sin and rescues us to him. That through that process, we're made clean and able to be adopted into his family. But it's not like that happens. You give your life to Jesus and all of a sudden, all of your sin and brokenness disappears. All right, so all of us in your life, the biggest obstacle between you and God and God's will is you, <laughs> right? It is your sin-plagued heart. And as we give our life to Jesus, we still wrestle with the brokenness inside. The promise that he's given here is that every enemy will be overcome and that the sin that you wrestle with, the things that you look inside yourself and you say, why doesn't this thing go away? Why am I still gossiping? Why am I still holding bitterness toward that person? Why am I still lusting in this way? Why am I still finding my security and money? Why do I still do these things? The promise is that that is overcome and will be overcome. And that by the power of the Spirit, we can have victory in these things. I don't want to keep going on. I'm going to keep going on. Let's look at the second one that's in here. The second promise that he's giving in here that would encourage the people of Israel and through them us is this promise of restoration. God will restore what was lost. This verse, verse 12, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. So you've got to pause again and put yourself in the minds of these people. They've been exiled into the land. They're being returned to the land. He's talking about these prisoners that were stolen out in, into a foreign nation. Uh, they were, in, in some sense, refugees or exiles or trafficked into another place. R really, this is human trafficking uh, that we see happen. And in this place, prisoners in a foreign land, what does he call them? Prisoners of hope. It's like, what on earth? Why are they prisoners of hope? Because he knows and he's promising the restoration that's coming. That even in that place, it's not the end, but he will bring them back and is bringing them back. I want you to think of what's going on in their mind and, and there are many modern day versions of this. If you think about displaced people around the world, what's he promising restoration of? More than just restoration to the land and to his people. It's, it's broader than that. Think about the family members that they lost when an enemy nation came in to conquer them, those who fought and lost their lives. Think about the socioeconomic damage that happened as they were taken out of their land, shipped off to another land where they're treated as slaves. And then they're finally brought back to the land and having to build from the beginning. Think of what they lost in that process as all of the wealth of the temple was stolen, as all of the riches were plundered, uh, as their women were raped. And now they've got children that they're trying to raise that, that are uh, of another nation or that have been taken from them and left behind. Think about the mental and emotional trauma that these people would go through. I mean, I don't know that we can ever understand this, what it would be like for an enemy nation to come in and rip us out of our culture and comfortable Hillsborough, uh, to kill our family, to steal our wealth and then drag us kicking and screaming to a foreign land where we don't speak the language. Think of the trauma 
as they come back to the land and try and figure out how to do life again with that. Think of the promise of peace that he's giving. This person is going to come and proclaim peace to the nations, that he's going to bring restoration and, and give them twice as much as they had before. This is a powerful promise that we kind of just get lost. Okay, they're brought back to the land. The promise of restoration, he's saying he's going to give them double everything that was taken. Uh, Double the healing, double the help, double the family, double the peace that they had before. And, And I think the reality in these things, God offers us a promise, right? As we look at our life and just think of the damage in your life as a result of sin. Things that have been done to you, things that have been said to you, things that have been done by you. I think of things that have been done to me, things that I have done uh, that, that, that rupture people's souls, that cause damage. And then when we think about the promise of restoration, what does restoration look like? It doesn't always look the way we want. God's not going to take the child that died 10 years ago and, and bring him back to life now. But there's a greater promise in that of being able to meet them again at the resurrection, of spiritual fruit that is born through you, of abundance, of hope, of, of the brokenness and the pain being used to minister to and heal others. Uh, these, these promises that is given of restoration didn't come immediately. There weren't promises that they had right away and then they basked in all of the wealth and the riches and the peace. And they saw glimpses of it and then there was a future hope that they were looking forward to and a future restoration. All of the things that we're experiencing, all of those times uh, where you see breakthrough over sin, all of those moments where God's truth comes in and replaces a lie that you've been believing, all of those moments where we see stories of restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness, those stories we read where um, someone murders a family member and then the mom goes and offers forgiveness and grace and befriends the murderer, those moments are glimpses and deposits and guarantees of what's to come. We're getting little insights now to what it is that we're waiting on, those moments of revelation that we experience are glimpses of the joy we'll have when we see Jesus face to face. Those intimate encounters you have with people where you feel seen and known are are glimpses of the intimacy that we're gonna have with Christ at the end. So we don't see it all now, but the promise is still there. It is coming. God's gonna restore what you've lost and it will be be beyond what you can ever imagine. The third promise that we see in this passage is really a promise of cosmic victory. God will be victorious. Right at the end of the passage, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. What a beautiful image. This image of a saved Israel. It's very easy for us to look and go, uh, well, we're the church, so we kind of replace all of that. Yes, this applies to us, God's saved people, but there is a promise of a saved Israel worshiping the Lord, not just because of their ethnicity, but because they give themselves to him and the Messiah that he sent. This whole section at the end is a vision of God appearing in a cosmic way. Let me, let me read it again. 
What's he say right at the end? The Lord will appear. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound a trumpet. He'll march in the storms of the south. The Lord will shield them. He'll destroy and overcome. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl. This image, this cosmic image of Jesus returning. There are so many other places in scripture where you have Jesus coming on the cloud and in glory with flashes of lightning so that all people see. This is the image here. Um, The Lord will appear on that day and he will save his people on that day so that they sparkle. God's people once again, the jewel in his crown. We know, well, we hear the truth, right? That we are the apple of his eye, that he delights in us. So we're still trying to embed that in our hearts so that it shapes our identity and changes the way we live. But what is true for us as we experience Christ is true for his people Israel as they come back to saving knowledge through the Messiah. There's a promise of victory. There will be peace in the world because of God's transformative power. The bows will be broken. The weapons will be removed. Nations will once again come together in peace and harmony. And all of these enemies will be brought into God's people. And we see that in all the prophetic literature. Egypt is going to be brought in. Ammonites are going to be brought in. They're all going to come in under the umbrella of Israel because through Abraham, he'll be the father of many nations and all nations will be saved. Basic truths that we know. But as, I, as I've been doing in many of these passages, I skipped out the middle section, which is the one that's most fun. How does all this come about? Like, what's the promise in the passage of how this comes? How God's cruciform king enters the scene? So in verse 9, the one that we know so well that we saved for Palm Sunday, I almost decided to preach Zechariah 9 on Palm Sunday and switch the order around, but I didn't want to throw everyone off. But what's the promise here? Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. In this passage, there's this promise of the enemy's been overcome. There's a promise at the end of this victory that will happen where there will be peace. And it all centers on this king that arrives, the one that Israel has been looking for. The one that the world is craving, a king that's predicted. He's the one that will proclaim peace to the nations. There's a reason we celebrate him as the prince of peace. He's going to bring dominion from sea to sea. Some people, as they look at this, are thinking it means from the, like from the, Red, uh, from the, the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean. And, and it's a, a promise of the restoration of Israel to the land. The next verse spreads out beyond that. It's, if you're a flat earther in here, here's your little moment. Um, from sea to sea, it's from one end of the earth to the other, because those parts that you're going to drop off. Um, d- peace to the nations, dominion from sea to sea, this is the promise. And did you see in the wording? This promise of a covenant ratified in blood. He says in verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. This promise that through a covenant of blood, this king is going to bring restoration. So I want, I want to put an image up here uh, and, and sit and reflect on this for a moment. The early church, we, when we sit on this side <laughs> of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 2,000 years later, it's so easy for us to forget that there's a process that the people in Scripture went through. 
So the early church, when they came to faith, when the disciples had the spirit of God fall on them, when Paul was called to take the gospel to the ends of the nation, this is a Jewish people who had grown up meditating on the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures. Rabbis had the Torah memorized. They steeped in the prophets. So what happens when the spirit falls on them? You've got this moment on the Emmaus Road when they're walking along and it says Jesus walks through all of the law and the prophets and shows how it all points to him. And they have this strange burden in their hearts. So as the spirit falls on the church, the church engages this, this process where they start going back through the scriptures they're familiar with. And suddenly with the spirit illuminating their hearts, they see all of these scriptures that they've read before in a new light. And so early on, the church looked at this passage in Zechariah 9 and understood without doubt that this passage was referring to Jesus the Messiah. I want to read you Matthew 21, Matthew of the four gospels. He's the, he's the, the Jew of Jews and he's written this to, for Jews to understand. He's constantly gone back into Old Testament scriptures and helping them to see how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the passage that we're familiar with. In Matthew 21. And how they understood this passage to be. So Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem. Jesus and the disciples. And came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them. Go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there. Bring her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you. Tell them the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. Do you see the deliberateness in this passage? Jesus is like, we're going we're gonna in to Jerusalem. Someone go find me this animal. I know the scripture that's about to be fulfilled. This took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, paving the way. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, save us to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They read this passage in Zechariah and they knew what it was pointing to. Jesus knew this passage and whether he knew the passage and acted this out in order to fulfill it, or whether Jesus just lives the word so fully in his life as the living word of God that he just did it and it naturally fulfilled the scriptures. I don't know, either is awesome. Um, but he's fulfilling this passage. And here's what I want you to think about for a minute. I want you to contrast this with the hope that they had and the fulfillment that happened in 333 as Alexander the Great came in to conquer the enemies of God's people. I want you to think of that image that they'd been longing for for a messianic king that was going to come in and just take out the enemies one at a time and cleanse the land of pollution to restore it to God's people and contrast that with this image of the true messianic king and how he comes, gentle and lowly, riding on a baby donkey. 
This was the image that they expected and they celebrated of a king riding into town. If he was coming in for military conquest, he would come in riding on a stallion. If he was coming in with peace, he would come in on the the colt of a donkey. And so so Jesus is declaring the kind of kingdom that he's going to live and rule. But here's the deal. For anyone right now at this point, when Jesus is arriving on the scene and coming into Israel, we know that Caesar is the one enthroned. So for anyone to ride an animal into Jerusalem is a confrontational declaration. It is a statement that I am declaring that I am the king. And in this instance saying, I am the king who's coming in peace and humility to restore my people. And for, for many, when, when you start reading the Easter story and you see the, 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 um, the Sanhedrin and we, we see Herod and we see uh, Pontius Pilate and we see the accusations being made, you're calling yourself the king. You rode into Jerusalem on the donkey declaring you're a king. But Jesus wasn't coming in to confront Caesar or Pilate, but Jesus was enacting a confrontational moment. This is a moment of deliberate confrontation. As Jesus sits on this donkey coming in in peace, he is declaring war against the kingdom of darkness. This is a moment of confrontation. While the world around is using strength and military might to get their way, Jesus comes in saying, I'm going to go the opposite way. Jesus knows the predictions that he's going to give his life. He knows the plan. He's had people say to him, don't go, you're going to die. And he gets on this colt and he rides into Jerusalem saying, power of darkness, whatever you want to throw at me, give it your best shot because it isn't going to win. This was the moment I'm coming in. I'm going to restore and inaugurate and establish my kingdom. He does it as he lays down his life willingly. You see through the passage that he's completely in control. And I think the thing that you see the most in this passage is the cruciform nature of the power that God wields. The cruciform nature of the power that God wields. What does that mean? Cruciform is just the word we use for shaped like the cross. God has always wielded his power in a cruciform way. So when Jesus had the ability to come in as a military victor and overthrow the city, he doesn't. He chooses to come in in the way of the cross, gentle and lowly, offering peace and invitation while he confronts the power of darkness. He's in control the whole way through as he does this. And here's the thing, as you look at your life, as you look at what it means for us as the church to go out into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God, as we look at what it means as Christians to stand against the powers of darkness, there are lots of ways in the world currently and there are lots of ways in history that that has been done. We look back on the Crusades where they said, we're going to come in as military victors and wipe out the enemies of God. And it's, it's a stain on the history of the church because of the damage and the brutality that was enacted. Whenever we're engaging And the work of Jesus, and it happens in a way that doesn't mirror his cruciform way of wielding power, we're not following the way of Jesus. And so we've got to think about the way we speak to people, 
the way we serve people, the way we correct people, the way we talk about things out there, the way that we oppose the things that we don't agree with? Are we doing it in a way that's full of arrogance and pride or are we mounted on the colt of a donkey following in the footsteps of Jesus, the humble and gentle king? I want to finish with the last couple of verses in this chapter. I don't know if as we read through it, you noticed. I don't know if Zechariah noticed when he wrote these words down, the impacts of what would happen here. But I found myself wondering if he knew what was meant by this statement. So as he's closing this hope, this, this king is going to come in, gentle and lowly, he's going to declare peace, and God's presence is going to appear, and he's going to save his people. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. Interesting choice of language. There will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Us as his people enthroned as the royal priesthood. How attractive and beautiful they will be, as we're told, will be presented spotless and blameless before the throne of God. And then this last little part, grain will make the young men thrive, new wine the young women. The grain that is crushed to make the bread, the grapes that are crushed to make the wine. I don't know if Zechariah could envision the communion moment here as we stopped with the grain and the grape to celebrate the saving work that he did. But here in this passage, this beautiful little declaration, this king came, he will come again through that process, he'll save his people. And what is it that makes us thrive as men and women in the kingdom? It's as we take the grain and wine together to remember the way of Jesus and to know how we walk in his path. So I promise, enemies defeated, a cruciform king to lead the way, a victory where God's presence descends and world peace will come and all centers around the grain and the grape, the covenant and blood that rescues us from darkness and brings us in to his kingdom. So as I said, I would just be walking over some simple and well-known gospel truths. As we look at a passage like this, it's so easy to write it off, get caught up in the one little illusion that we see and celebrate this passage on Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. But the whole promise is what we are longing for. The whole thing is pointing to him. All these little nuances in the passage reminding us of the way we're called to live in the world. So are you gonna step up? living in the cruciform way of Jesus, following in his footsteps to bring the peace that he promises, to experience the victory that he offers and to be his agents to establish his kingdom more fully here on the earth. Let me pray. Mm. God, a promise of salvation, the jewels in your crown, the grain and the wine crushed for you. Jesus, a pathway to the throne God, it's so easy uh, to judge and critique. It's so easy to come with a heavy hand to the things around us. Thank you that you're a person who walks with uh, and acts with severe mercy toward us. Lord, we need you to root out the sin inside of us. We need uh, the enemy 
defeated inside of us. Lord, we need your, you to encamp around us. We are your temples. You said you'll encamp around your temple to protect it from marauding forces. God, would you encamp around us to protect us from the darts, the fiery darts of the enemy? And God, would you help us to see the consistency of Scripture, these truths that carry from beginning to end, these prophecies that were prophesied that some fulfillment happened, but there's more we're longing for. So God, send us into the world to declare the truth. These things were promised, that these things happened, and then to declare the hope that there is more to come. And so God, as we walk out this week, would you make us more like Jesus in the way we walk in the world? And more like Zachariah, and that we proclaim your truth to the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name.